Hi everyone, I'm Mike Morris. Thanks so much for joining me for this episode of Community Corner. Tonight, I'll be speaking with two community leaders about a community priority that is spiraling out of control, the unaffordability of housing. The average price for a detached home in Kitchener and Waterloo was up 32% over the last year at a time when income growth is near zero, while the average wait time for a one-bedroom apartment on the affordable housing waitlist is now over eight years. In tonight's show, Melissa Bowman, who co-founded Yes in My Backyard, WR, and Lula Wolder-Miriam from House of Friendship join me for a conversation on the actions and policies that can be taken to reorient towards housing as a human right, ensuring we prioritize homes for people first, ahead of commodities for investors. They both share their concerns and possible solutions for those being impacted across the housing continuum, and we talk about the impact housing has on mental health and environmental sustainability. We had intended for Jeff Wilmer from A Better Tent City to also join us, but as you'll hear in the episode, we had some technical difficulties. Make sure you join us next week for a second episode where we welcome Jeff back along with site coordinator Nadine Green. As always, please feel free to let me know your thoughts through any of my social channels at Morris Mike, and feel free to suggest future show topics or speakers anytime. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Melissa and Lula tonight. Thanks again for listening. I am so glad that this actually worked. Uh, this is our first time live with a panel of three folks. And uh, so thrilled uh, for those of you that are joining us tonight. Thanks for being with us. Uh, really excited to welcome to the conversation, welcome you all to this conversation on housing in Waterloo region. It's our second uh, full panel. First one that has actually worked on Facebook last week with some arts and culture folks, we had to switch over to Zoom. Um, and so really glad to be with you tonight. Uh, alongside three people I just, I just have a lot of respect for and uh, really appreciate you three all making time to be a part of this. Lula Waldemiriam from House of Friendship is with us, Melissa Bowman from Waterloo Region Yes in My Backyard, and Jeff uh, Wilmer from A Better Tent, Tent City. As we get started, I'd like to acknowledge uh, that tonight our panelists and myself are speaking with you from the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral peoples. Uh, as many of you know, we're situated on the Haldeman Tract. It says 950,000 acres of land that was given to the Six Nations in 1784. It's 10 kilometers on each side of the Grand River. More specifically, uh, Kitchener is on a portion of this land known as Block 2, uh, which was intended to be leased to settlers and instead was sold as land with full title. Uh, Worth repeating that across all of the Haldeman Tract, there were very few outright legal sales of land, and 90% of the leased land has never been paid for or paid to Six Nations. If you're joining us tonight from another location, I'd encourage you to research the history of the land that you live and work on. Uh, my interest in acknowledging this history is in reminding us that the injustice of this past, it plays an important role in informing our conversations tonight. Uh, as an example, uh, with respect to housing, Indigenous people living in urban centers are eight times more likely to experience ho homelessness compared to the general population. And so tonight I acknowledge all of this in the interest of nurturing and seeking to live out a shared and active hope that this conversation and that the days ahead can be part of a journey towards genuine truth and reconciliation. 
Returning to our guests, I'd like to briefly introduce, and then we'll get into some of the questions and conversation. Uh, for those of you that have joined us, uh, please know we'll be taking questions, um, and so feel free to be adding those uh, in the in the chat as you'd like. Um, to start, just some really brief uh, bios. Uh, first of all, Lula Waldemiriam, uh, welcome again. Uh, Lula has been the supportive housing manager at House of Friendship since 2018. Lula has over 15 years of experience in the addictions, mental health, and housing sector, most recently with Loft Community Services in, in Toronto. Melissa Bowman, welcome Melissa again. Uh, Melissa co-founded Water the Region Yes in My Backyard and has been involved in a long list of community projects, uh, including the Victoria Park Neighborhood Association, Union Sustainable Development Co-op, and Midtown Radio, uh, which will be re-airing this conversation in a few weeks time. And so uh, welcome if you're listening uh, to us on uh, Midtown. Uh, and last, Jeff uh, uh, Wilmer, welcome again, Jeff. Uh, I'm not sure the title you would use, Jeff. I'm going to use the term co-founder. Uh, Jeff is one of three folks that helped bring a better tent city uh, as a vision to our community. Um, he's a former city planner and was the chief administrative officer at the city of Kitchener from 2012 until 2017. Um, I'll also let it be known that Jeff actually uh, uh, didn't create, but is using someone else's account to join us on Facebook tonight. And so, Jeff, thanks for uh, uh, working through that te technical part of it to be with us. Um, Lula, Melissa, and Jeff were three of about a dozen or so local experts uh, that shared their perspectives in the lead up to a blog post uh, that I shared earlier this week on what we need to be doing to prioritize putting homes for people first ahead of commodities for investors. If anyone that hasn't seen that post already, we'll include, include a link to it uh, in the comments. And sorry, I should actually clarify, Lula, we didn't speak before the post came out. Other folks at House of Friendship weighed in, uh, and so I'm particularly glad to have your perspective also added uh, to this conversation. So with that as an as a introduction, let's start with hearing a bit more of, um, a bit about your backgrounds, the work you've been invested in, maybe just a couple of minutes or so each, if you wouldn't mind sharing about your work in addressing affordable housing and the affordability of housing, um, and also what motivates you to be involved in this particular work. And so, Lula, why don't we start with you, uh, and then I think we, maybe then Jeff and Melissa after, after that. Great. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so I'll get started. Um, I just want to say thank you to Mike for having us here today, and it's my first time meeting um, the both of you, so I'm really looking forward to, to our time together this evening. As Mike mentioned, I have about 15 years experience in the social service sector um, before joining House of Friendship, and so I just want to touch a bit about that in terms of um, my sort of experience and, and in some of the challenges I've seen in terms of affordable housing and, and um, a lot of the pieces that we'll get into today. So I was actually involved with a project called London Cares in London, Ontario, which was a housing first model um, that started where we were housing chronically homeless individuals into scattered site housing um, with supports that wasn't on site. And so that was kind of my first dive into housing and, and got me really excited in terms of what the possibilities are. But um, with that also came um, the significant challenges that you see today that have existed for quite some time in terms of access to housing. Um, since then, um, every position I've taken has really gravitated towards housing and addressing the housing crisis that, that we face today. Um, I continue to see those challenges 
in my current role and it excites me that I'm in a position and with an organization that really wants to address this and um, see better days. So when I reflect about what motivates me um, in the work that I do around affordable housing is creating um, innovative solutions to really meet the needs of the individuals that have really gone unseen and unheard for a long time. Um, so in my current role, I feel excited. Um, I feel challenged on certain days, but I, I, I'm definitely motivated. I will say that. I think um, being new to this community, it's been about three years since I came to Waterloo Region. I see that the heart is there. The folks that are addressing this really want to see a change. And so I'm excited to be a part of this community. And um, we don't really shy away from what the challenges are. Um, and we all come together to kind of see what we can do. So thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to hear from everyone else as well. Lula, thank you. We'll turn it over to Jeff. Um, Jeff, do you want to share a bit, a bit more about the work you're involved in? And as you finish sharing, I think we're getting a bit of feedback. Um, and so I'll ask, uh, I had a bit of logistics, but if you wouldn't mind going on mute if you're not speaking, that might help just to ensure we can hear everyone really well. Why don't we try, um, Melissa, if you wouldn't mind going next, I'll buy Jeff some time if there might be any technical um, if you don't mind going ahead, Melissa, and we can yeah, come yeah. back. For sure, that sounds good. Um, well, Mike mentioned some of the uh, stuff that I'm a part of um, in, in the quick bio he did at the beginning. Um, as he mentioned, I'm a co-founder of WR Yimby, which is Waterloo Region Yes in My Backyard. Um, and through that group, that organization, we're looking at ways that we can help our community to welcome new neighbors, uh, we look at issues of zoning and policies that may act as barriers to creating more or maintaining existing housing, uh, especially housing that's on the affordable end of the spectrum. Um, as Mike mentioned, a few of these, I'm connected with a number of other organizations that are also having conversations about housing. Uh, one is Union Sustainable Development Cooperative, which uh, strives to create permanent housing affordability through collective ownership of real estate in our region. Um, Menno Homes and Indwell are two nonprofit housing providers locally that um, I've done some volunteer work with or have connected in, in some ways. Um, if, uh, if we get to hear from Jeff, I'm assuming we might hear a little bit more about the Social Development Center of Waterloo Region, who are um, partners in the Unsheltered Campaign and the Lot uh, 42 Tiny, Tiny Homes. Um, also 50 by 30 Waterloo Region is a climate justice organization that uh, we've connected with recently. Um, we have some similar goals with the WR Yimby work. Um, I've been a long time volunteer with the Victoria Park Neighborhood Association. And as you can imagine, neighborhood associations are having conversations about housing uh, in their in their neighborhoods okay. as well. Um, I might, I might housing impacts so connection. many other issues. It feels like there's... So Jeff, if you can hear me, we're going to let Melissa finish her introduction and then hopefully some of the lag might work itself out and then have you uh, share as well. No worries. Um, as I was saying before we joined the group together, I, over all of the Zoom meetings I've been in over this last year, I don't think I've made it through one without some technical issues. We're all, uh, I think, used to dealing with some of these tech issues. So yeah, I was just saying that I think housing issues um, really impact so so many other issues in our community. Um, in fact, that may be my personal theme for tonight. You'll probably hear me say some iteration of that throughout the evening. Um, and as far as motivation goes, I think uh, my own experience uh, growing up in a variety of housing options um, 
townhomes, uh, detached, uh, single detached um, trailer park, many apartments, uh, basement apartments, that type of thing, um, has helped make me a passionate advocate for diverse housing options. Um, and in 2018, I ran in the municipal uh, election. During that campaign, I had a ton of conversations about housing and development. It was on everybody's minds. Um, those conversations allowed me to think much more deeply about a variety of issues related to housing. Uh, and that's also when I met Martin Asling, and he's the uh, other co-founder of Waterloo Region Yes in My Backyard. And we started having some conversations about uh, forming some sort of organization that could help address uh, some of these housing issues in our community. So maybe we can see if, uh, if Jeff is ready to jump in with his introduction now. Melissa, thanks so much. Uh, just hearing from you and Lula already, hearing some of the mix of perspectives you bring to this conversation. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, to getting into it more. Um, check, as, as Melissa shared, let's check back in. Jeff, have you got uh, audio working now? So what I can try to do maybe is I'll share a bit about uh, Jeff and his absence for right now. We might need to move ahead potentially uh, without Jeff if we can't... Um, and it's a shame because uh, Jeff, I, I so appreciate your insights. Um, but so in the meantime, I'll just share it. So uh, Jeff is one of the folks that as Melissa was sharing uh, through the Social Development Center and the Unsheltered Campaign, a number of folks have come together um, to, uh, to create, uh, to bring forward a vision for a better tent city. And I think Joanna in the chat even has a, a video for folks who might not be aware of, um, of some of the incredible work that's been done to provide um, a, a you know a pretty uh, unique way of housing folks who haven't um, who've been unhoused uh, in the last little while. I think it's up to eighteen or so uh, tiny homes that are on the lot forty two site uh, right now. It's a pretty exceptional uh, model, um, and so of course I can't do it justice the way I know you would, Jeff. Um, so I'll try one of the, one more time, Jeff. Are you able to uh, to hear me now? So we'll see uh, if, if Joanna's in the, in the chat. Feel free to we can see if we can have um, Jeff log back in in some in some way. For now, let's continue, and maybe we might have a chance to have Jeff's insights uh, shared later in the conversation. Um, so to start, um, so as many of you probably already saw, I shared this blog post last Friday afternoon, um, reflecting on the reality of. You know, we're in the midst of multiple housing crises, uh, a system that seems broken at, uh, you know, various seg segments of the continuum of housing, uh, all the way from, the, from folks who are experiencing home, homelessness and who might be precariously ho housed, all the way over to, to folks um, looking at single detached home ownership. So I, I shared examples of some of that brokenness in, in the post, including, you know, the eight-year wait list uh, for, for affordable housing, for example. And so I'm curious if Melissa or Lula, and feel free if either one of you wants to jump in first, um, is there a root issue or a point in the system of particular concern that you'd want to draw folks' attention to when we think we'll talk solutions next? But before we do that, just want to give you some time to talk about where you see of course, there are many, so I'm not, not saying that this is the only, but is there a root issue or a point in the continuum uh, that you want to uh, kind of bring, bring some light to? Sure. I can go first if that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think for me, um, as I mentioned in my intro as well, just really around working with 
some of the most vulnerable individuals in our community. Um, I really think about um, the number of individuals that are currently in shelter. Um, and that for me is a root issue that really stands out in terms of how do we address that issue? Um, and then we look along the continuum um, to see how we also address the other pieces. And I really do think it's a trickle down effect of what's happening in our community right now in terms of this housing crisis. I think about 80% of individuals that are currently in shelter are navigating challenges related to their mental health, um, their physical health, all of that combined. And so I think about supportive housing and what that offers. So in terms of what I would wanna focus on, um, when I think about how we address some of the housing issues that we're seeing in our community is that housing with supports and, and what comes with that. When I think about that 80%, um, those folks need housing. There's no question there, but they also need the supports that come along with that. And um, at House of Friendship, we're, we have our supportive housing program. We see day in and day out how we're able to stabilize someone's housing with those supports in place. And so when I think about resources that we can put in to create robust supportive housing programs that have all the resources on site, being mental health, addiction supports. We can really create programs that propel someone into in their recovery from homelessness and moving them on into housing into the community, right? And so then I think about moving on in the continuum um, that, you, that you've talked about, Mike, in your post. I think it's really important that we start where the most vulnerable individuals are um, and not to take away from what's happening on the other side of the continuum, but I think it's really important that we don't lose sight of the most impacted in terms of their vulnerability. Um, so yeah, so for me, when I think of my root issue and how we address it, um, it's really getting someone into that housing, ensuring that they're able to be successful in that housing and moving them forward. And um, one of the big initiatives with supportive housing is, yes, this is permanent housing, but there's individuals who outgrow supportive housing, right? They get to a point and they don't need the support and that's great, right? We wanna see that. We wanna see individuals that recognize, yeah, I, I'm in a place, whether that you know is two years or five years that they're realizing I can move on, but where are they moving on to, right? We need to create programs where there are funds for individuals to be able to either have a top up to their rent or we're creating, you know, when we think of the larger issue around housing, we are creating affordable housing where there isn't a lack. We see that every day and it's, it's disheartening, you know, when someone is identifying that they want to move on and there's nowhere for them to go. Um, and so I think that that's something supporting the frontline housing workers, just having those conversations and, and not losing hope, you know, because there is opportunity there for us to make some change. And so Lula, if I could just clarify and, Melissa, hope you don't mind, we'll, we'll get right to you next. But what you're saying then is the route, you know, beyond housing some, uh, someone, recognizing that mental health and addiction supports need to go with housing, whether it, you know, shelter care being an example of, of that. Is that what, what you're getting at? Is that this is not simply about providing a roof over someone's head? We yeah. need to speed some of these in, in, uh, intersections? Absolutely, yeah. And so I think, you know, research has shown that individuals, you can put a roof over someone's head, but if you don't have the right supports put in place, you're not setting an individual up for success. And I think it's so critical that we identify those pieces and, and we do the work um, through shelter care, which is, you know, making those connections, but those supports following that person into their housing and continuing until we get them um, to move on to live independently and a healthy life. Well said, thank, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think um, all of what Lula said was great. And uh, if, if people aren't familiar with shelter care, I'd encourage you to look that up um, because I think House of Friendship is um, proving, uh, showing us a really strong model through through that approach. Um, 
But yeah, with WREMB and the work that we're doing, um, our approach tends to be like all of the things <laughs> impact everything. So, you know, as I said before, I think housing is one of those really big and multifaceted issues that are intertwined with a lot of different things like racial justice, climate justice, economics, and, and a lot more. Uh, so one of the things our group has started doing lately is reaching out to other organizations, doing some of the work around uh, those things that I mentioned, climate justice and, and racial justice. Um, and as we're forming these relationships, we're seeing that in certain areas, we have similar goals and we're finding ways that we can work together uh, and also hold each other accountable on some of those key issues. Um, because like I said, there's so much of it um, that it's good to have organizations, for example, House of Friendship, who are really um, focused on, on specific um, issues of the, the whole spectrum. Um, it's good to have those areas of expertise that we can rely on um, to help keep us focused on, on what's really important here. So WR YIMBY is really focused on housing specifically, but then when we work with an organization like um, climate justice uh, focused organization, we're able to identify calls to action that not only address housing affordability, but also environmental sustainability. Um, so things like dense walkable neighborhoods, um, housing that's close to other amenities, so you don't necessarily need to rely on a, a vehicle, um, which can also mean more affordable housing when you don't have to build parking um, for, for cars that not everybody necessarily needs. Um, so I honestly can't say it's this one thing that we need to focus on. WRUMB as an organization is definitely interested in the, the more affordable, deeply affordable um, end of the spectrum for sure. Um, but I do think there's a lot of, of issues that are all interconnected, um, which is one of the reasons why I'm so interested in partnering with other organizations, because I think we all need, we need everybody on board to make any uh, substantive change. Um, I would also just borrow from the work of Shane Phillips, who is the author of a book called The Affordable City. Um, he says that in order to improve housing affordability, we must address supply, subsidy, and stability. So we simply need more housing. Um, we need more government subsidies for housing, um, and we need regulations in place to ensure the stability of the market. So things like rent control might be um, one example of a possible uh, stability measure. Um, so that's something that WRUMB has really picked up, that supply, stability, and subsidy are, are key areas that we're trying to focus on. That's such a great segue, Melissa. Thank you. Um, and, and thanks even. So I, I ended up picking up uh, Shane's book as a result of um, uh, be, that being prom, pro, uh, promoted by one of the region, yes, in my backyard. Um, and it actually also influenced the, the way I presented different policies in the post. And so you've already started to get into one uh, potential solution I'd love to talk a bit more about. Um, in the post, for those that haven't seen it, of course, it's just linked in the chat. I shared a number, like just over a dozen or so policies, um, inspired actually, again, by, by Shane's work in, in three groups, one around policies that could help prevent homelessness, uh, another around those that might increase the supply of more affordable housing. And then thirdly, policies that could cool an overheated market. Uh, and policies that uh, we could be looking at and should be looking at from all levels of government working together, uh, municipal, federal, and provincial. Um, and so, of course, no one solution is the magic ticket. If that were the case, we wouldn't be here right now. It's far more complex than that. Um, but I also think it's helpful to talk about specific solutions as opposed to just wringing our hands around um, uh, the challenges we're facing. 
And so as a starting point, I'm not sure if Melissa, you wanted to keep talking about rent control as, as one example. Um, but if either of you wanted to share your, your reflections on either themes of what you're looking for in potential solutions and or if there's one particular solution you wanted to share a bit more about, I feel it adds a lot to the conversation for folks to get a sense of, you know, what should we rally around? What, where, where do we need to be putting pressure? What are the levers that could be kind of a breakthrough solution potentially when, you know, seen as part of a larger mix? And so yeah, turn it back to either of you. Uh, for any particular policies you wanted to share a bit more about. And, and I see some of the questions coming in too, which is great. We'll get to some of those questions uh, after this. Okay. I can jump in if that's okay, Melissa. Okay. Um, so when I think about some of the solutions, um, I don't have specific ones that necessarily come to mind in terms of, I thought your blog was phenomenal, Mike, just in terms of laying it all out and, and really breaking it down um, for somebody who's for the first time reading about what we're dealing with um, in terms of our, our housing crisis at the moment. So I think this is a really unique opportunity and, I, and I'm starting to see some of that where the not-for-profit sector, the private sector and the government um, are really trying to collaborate. Um, so I don't think this is one, one thing that can just be put on the government alone. I think it's opportunity for us to really come together to present solutions and work collaboratively. I see the not-for-profit sector working alongside the, the private sector to create more housing supply. Um, we're just in a unique place, right? Everyone is recognizing that there is no supply. And so I think about um, the entire continuum um, in terms of everyone that's being impacted from all income levels um, in terms of their housing and what we're seeing. So I think about how the market, the housing market has gone up over 50% now, I think, um, you know, in the last four or five years. And then I also think about rent increasing by over 20%. Um, just you know, in the recent years. And so there's really an opportunity and it's almost a call out to everyone um, to really collaborate. I think a lot of the times we will look to our different levels of government to, to present the solutions. I think it's a really good opportunity for the not-for-profit sector to step up, the private sector to step up and how do we really collaborate and bring our ex expertise together? Yeah, I'll just um, piggyback on that. Um, I'm definitely going to speak to uh, the government role, but I really think um, we've got some great examples of not-for-profit um, builders in our community. Um, and again, they tend to partner with other people in, in the community as well and form really strong relationships that create um, great housing and, and community in that, often with um, some of those supports that Lula had mentioned earlier. So I think that is really, um, it's become sort of an interest in mine of mine, and I'm definitely interested in learning more about what the non not for profit um, builders are doing. Um, I do think that, like Lula said, there is still a role for for government. Um, I think we need those higher levels, um, federal and provincial levels of government, uh, to get back into social community housing. Um, we, you know, there are definitely some funds coming coming in for affordable housing uh, projects. It feels like they tend to be a little bit piecemeal um, and often short-term uh, or project-specific funding, um, which I think makes it challenging to have a fulsome, um, stable, long-term affordability plan for housing. Uh, starting in the, the mid-90s, we really saw what some call the, um, the evolution of social housing in our province, where little, if any, social housing um, was built by the province year after year for, for a period of probably a decade or two. Uh, in 2017, I believe, uh, the federal government introduced their national housing strategy. Um, and since then, we have seen um, some of those innovative things um, that have been mentioned already, which has been great to see. Of course, I would say lots more still needs to be done. 
the financial area of things is is not my area of expertise at all, but I think um, you know there's some interesting conversations happening around uh, capital gains reforms um, and maybe some form of wealth tax. I think the idea of a basic income is worth pursuing. Um, increased funding for things like OW and ODSP um, as a way to make housing more affordable for people um, are some ways that we can uh, attack those uh, financial aspects of it. Um, and when we consider what it might look like for a government to get back into social housing, I'd love to see us try more approaches here that are being implemented in other communities. Um, I'm a big fan of like cooperative ownership models. Um, so I would love to see co-ops abound in our community. Uh, there's a great example of a housing co-op just down the street from me, Bread and Roses, um, but I'd love to see them in all neighborhoods throughout the region. Uh, there are also some interesting things happening around land leases as well, and, and that's where people may own a home, but not the land that it sits on. Um, and we know that land is such a huge cost um, in housing, so land leases can have a real immediate impact on affordability. Uh, and there's a great good news story coming out of Kitchener recently. Um, the city has partnered with the YW um, using this land lease model that will provide 40 supportive housing units for women currently uh, experiencing homelessness. Um, Elizabeth Clark, the CEO of YW, uh, said that the fact that this is a land lease, so Kitchener keeps ownership of the, the land and the YW didn't have to purchase it because of that, um, it really made this project affordable and doable, um, and it's helping to speed the process along. Um, I think those 40 houses could be, those 40 housing units could be um, built and ready for folks to move in by the end of this year. So I think there's some really great models out there. As I mentioned, I think shelter care is, is another model um, worth looking into if you're not familiar with it. Um, so let's use this time to um, see what creative solutions are being implemented elsewhere and, and try those in our community as well. Melissa, thanks for, you both touched on so many different uh, ideas and solutions. We can link um, in the post, we talked about uh, the uh, Modular Homes pro project, I think it's on Block Line that the YWCA announced just a few weeks back that they're moving ahead with. Those are, I, I find those so important to give us a sense of hope. Uh, shelter care gives us a sense of hope, <laughs> you know, like the, that uh, despite uh, the systemic failures that we're seeing and experiencing, uh, that, that there are, that there are some of these, um, local um, solutions that are coming together and people coming together to, um, if not address the full scale, to show ideas around what's, pos what's possible at least. Um, I also really appreciate um, starting to get at some of the intersections around things like a guaranteed livable income, uh, addressing the number of preventable opioid overdoses in our community and how interconnected with housing uh, these challenges are and the need to be addressing those also. I think you both kind of touched on that in some of your comments. Um, I saw one of the earlier questions was just an, a, a great one to start with in terms of just getting us clear on the number of folks who are experiencing homelessness in our community. Um, so in the post, I mentioned a figure that we have. So this comes from James um, asking about the number of units of housing are, are needed to shelter those that are experiencing homelessness. Um, Lula, I'm not sure if you wanted to start with this, if there's some of the statistics you have. I'll, I'll share at least from the post, and this might be out of date even by a few weeks already. And I know some of these counts can be um, 
it can be, there's a lot of folks who might not want to be surveilled and counted and, and this kind of thing. So um, I don't mean to put you on the spot if these are, these statistics might not be available in the post top of mind. I think the, the statistic I shared from, I might've been the region uh, with their paths uh, that acronym you probably know off the top of your head. Uh, I think it was around 340 or so. Yeah. But that's correct. Mike. Yeah. Okay. Please go yeah, ahead. Um, so I'll, I'll try to answer this question as best as I can um, without having the numbers directly in front of me. But yeah, so in your post, you did mention about 344, if I remember correctly, just in terms of those who are experiencing homelessness right now. And that would be from the past list. And so an individual to be on the past list, they would have had to have been homeless for six months um, in order to be on that prioritized housing list. Um, and those individuals are the ones that receive um, supportive housing. So a lot of those individuals are currently in shelter. When a vacancy becomes available through one of the supportive housing providers, they would be um, considered for um, a housing unit. And then in terms of, there was one figure that I did see that I believe it was 8,000 affordable housing units are needed in our region um, as well. So I don't want to be quoted on that exactly, but um, I know that, that's, that that is a figure that um, that's tossed around quite a bit in terms of um, the amount of affordable housing units that are needed right now when I think about the community housing list and individuals that are on that eight-year wait list. It, I think that helps, Lula, having that sense of scale when we talk about 41 modular units with the YWCA. Uh, Melissa mentioned Menno Homes. I believe that's 46 or so units on Bridgeport. It gives us a sense of kind of what we're up against to both right. celebrate some of the wins, right, but then also recognize this is not something that we're going to, we can count on. Um, various nonprofits solving on their own. Obviously we need, you know, bigger solutions along with that. Makes me think of a better tent city. So let me just jump in here to say that I understand Jeff is with us, but unfortunately various, whatever the case with Facebook Live, we can't let him back into this locked room. So poor, poor Jeff's been trying to get back into the room. I understand uh, Jeff's in the chat. So I'll invite you, Jeff. Um, I'm really sorry that we haven't been, that uh, we can't have you join us live, uh, but Jeff, feel free in the chat to, uh, to share your reflections as you feel comfortable on any of these uh, questions as we go along. Um, and, uh, and certainly as it relates to uh, folks that are experiencing home, homelessness, I know that's an area that uh, uh, you've been putting so much of your time towards. Um, Melissa, is there more you want to share on this question before we move on to the next one? Uh, no, I think he covered the stats really well. I was uh, just going to say a quick Jeff story so it can kind of feel like he's part of this conversation. I have not met Jeff in person that I can recall. Um, we've had some email conversations, but um, I had emailed him um, that my mom, who lives a couple of hours from here, is also looking at affordable housing issues in, in their community, and they're trying to find the best way forward and are very interested in these tiny homes types of things. And Jeff just agreed to volunteer his time to speak to that group for like an hour um, just on these issues and what um, his experience has been with lot 42 tiny homes and stuff. And I just thought, I haven't met the guy, but he sounds like, like he's doing awesome stuff in the community. So shout out to Jeff. Well, and again, it's, it was Jeff and Ron and Nadine Green who came together, uh, you know, a group of people with three different um, lived experiences and backgrounds that in the midst of this crisis, created another solution that other communities are now looking to in terms of providing a more dignified um, and very grassroots approach to providing uh, on-site support um, and uh, housing for folks who 
uh, I think I get, like I said earlier, you know, 16 or so uh, units um, that are so critically needed. Um, and yeah, so, so thanks for, for sharing that, um, Melissa. I think there's a question here about rent control. So I'd love to come back to that. Um, it looks like it might be a bit, bit of a comment that, um, you know, for either of you to reflect back on. So the comment is, uh, the person feels like a percentage of rental units should be required to be pegged at minimum wage in an area. Um, curious your reflections on when we talk about what is the affordability of housing, uh, that is certainly one way to, to define it. And you know, some groups say 30% of income. And so should we be looking at minimum wage? Curious your reflections on that. Um, and then the second part is if a business opens up with um, minimum wage positions, we should ensure there are places nearby where workers can afford to live. Um, curious your reflections. I think I saw a report from Councillor Vasek in Waterloo a few months back uh, looking at income levels and what those income levels mean in terms of affordability of units in our community. And, you know, curious if you have any numbers in terms of someone who might be um, full time at minimum wage, what are the units they might be able to afford in our community, if any. Um, and then, you know, thoughts on whether rent control is part of the solution here or not. So not a small question, but for either of you want to uh, address any part of that, would certainly welcome hearing from you about that. Melissa, do you want to take this one? Yeah, sure. I can jump okay. in with, with a few thoughts. Um, and yeah, some of the details around, say, uh, certain things like rent control, I don't have all, all the specifics on it, but um, I think there's definitely um, a larger role that the government could play in um, helping to regulate some of, of the housing issues that we're um, experiencing. And again, going back to Shane's stuff about stability, um, subsidy and supply, I think that that falls under there as one of those things that can help. The thing that I'm realizing, and, and know that I've only been really following housing issues seriously for like the last couple of years. So, um, and I don't have, you know, a planning background or anything like that. So I'm just hearing stories from people. And I think, um, you know, the big thing that comes up is this idea of, uh, if you do this one action, because you want this to happen, there's also this other thing that could happen because of that. So there's this balance. So um, I think there's some really great things about rent control. The, the pushback I hear about that is that would, would there then be less supply because of it? And so those stability, supply and subsidy, um, it feels like they're always, okay, we're gonna focus a little bit on supply. Well, wait, now that means that, you know, tenants are not getting the protections and regulations that they want because, um, Builders are coming in and kicking out uh, existing tenants or tearing down existing um, affordable housing, um, you know, that type of thing. So it feels like this trio of supply stability and subsidy are, it's a push and pull thing all the time. And so I think that's one of the things that makes this issue so complex is, um, is that, that push and pull of all, of all, all these different actions. And so I guess related as we talk about the connections between income and housing. Um, Teresa's asked, um, or she stated actually first, something that is often getting missed in the housing conversation is disability and social supports. Um, and she goes on to, to ask two part question. Uh, the first part is how can we ensure that accessible housing is included in this conversation? And then secondly, advocacy for increased social assistance rates um, 
And I know, Melissa, you mentioned guaranteed livable income earlier. And so I'll just open that to both of you. I might try to jump in at the end but with a reflection of my own as well. Um, but curious about either of you have reflections on accessibility as it relates to housing. Um, and then also um, conversations around a basic or guaranteed livable income and the patchwork of, of current social assistance, whether it's OW or ODSP, um, and the challenges that that creates for uh, the precariousness of housing. Lula, I'll give you that. If you would like to, feel free to jump in and then Melissa, yeah. if she wants to. I can answer yeah. the first half of that question, um, just in terms of accessible units. There is a, a huge shortage um, of them. We, we, we recently are um, supporting someone who lives in one of our buildings. We are not a family building. You know, they've, been, they've had a baby and they're um, in need of an accessible unit. It is probably one of the more challenging cases trying to figure it out and, and it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be this difficult to find an accessible unit for um, a new mom and, and her baby. And so, and this is across the region. I think that, I don't think anyone will tell you that there is a surplus amount of accessible units um, available. And it's something that I'm passionate about just in terms of us creating more accessible units um, for individuals that are experiencing homelessness. There, there is a need and, and you talk about vulnerable, right? You're, you're homeless, but then you've got, um, you know, so many other challenges that come along with that. And so, yeah, it's, it's sad if I'm going to be really honest in terms of the lack of availability for that. Um, I think it's something that we need to have some foresight on when we start building um, and increasing our supply is recognizing that this is something that needs to be thought of before we start putting up buildings or creating new units because um, there's, there's absolutely a shortage. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, it's clear that there's a huge need for this and we know the numbers. We know that we're living longer, um, but with that sometimes uh, means there's a, uh, a larger percentage of us are either going to be dealing with our own disability at some point um, or or have somebody in our family, a loved one um, who is, is experiencing a disability. And so the fact that we don't have housing that um, accommodates for that is, is a really huge issue for sure. Um, I know that there's some um, interest just across the board in, in making housing more flexible, um, whether that's if you have a single detached home, um, putting some things in the design from the beginning that make it super easy for somebody to decide, let's make this into a duplex without having to do major renovations. I think there's some conversations happening around that with um, accessibility accessible units as well that um, perhaps it's um, you know a mainstream uh, unit um, but included in the design plan it's very easy to make those changes um, for when so even if you lived in it at a point when you were not experiencing a disability but that changed at some point in your life this the something in the design of it would allow that to happen very uh, easily, I think, and affordably. I think that's something worth considering um, in addition to just building more of them. I also think, um, you know, there's a real lack of um, diversity in the planning and design um, architects, um, that type of thing. Uh, when you don't have people who have that lived experience um, designing, then I think it shows up in the lack of, of um, appropriate spaces that are created. So I think we also need to bring the issue way back and look at how we can um, encourage more people with um, diverse backgrounds, experiences, and abilities to become involved in that um, designing process somehow. 
involved and listened to also, I can imagine, you know, yes, nothing about us without us. And also, you know, it's one thing to have a focus group or a subcommittee where folks with lived experience might be welcome to participate. It's another to also ensure that their participation and reflections actually shape the outcome of what is put forward afterwards. Uh, I know there has been some experiments with this uh, 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 locally, if our municipalities have been in including, and I know SDC, the Social Development Center, has been at the forefront of bringing folks with lived experience into the conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for, for touching on that too. Um, in terms of the income side, uh, I guess I'll point, you know, recognizing we have limited time here for folks that want to hear more. Um, I wrote a post on guaranteed livable income uh, back in September, and we'll, sh we'll share that in the comments as, you know, just a needed way to ensure that the inadequacy of our social assistance offerings right now are replaced to provide a stronger social safety net at a time when we know that, you know, to the comment that was being made earlier, on you know various patchwork uh, programs right now i just don't it's it's unclear to many of us how anyone can afford to get by uh, when we know what uh, rental rates are like in our community um i wanted to come back also to a point um i think melissa you might have made earlier i should also add jeff is now texting and we're adding comments from jeff uh, in the chat and so he's clarified it's 26 tiny homes um, and then more tenting indoors at a better tent city, 53 people. Um, turning to, um, I, I have personally lived in co-op housing. Um, I think, Melissa, you mentioned earlier some of the investments that had been made there. Um, you mentioned the national housing strategy that came out in 2017. And, you know, when that was reviewed by the parliamentary budget officer, uh, they looked, looked at it and said, actually, for those in core housing need, this strategy actually reduces uh, the total housing availability. And we know that, that that surge of construction was back in the early 90s um, when it re relates to, you know, non-market housing. And so curious if either of you have reflections. It's one of the ideas put forward in this post is to see significant investment from uh, provincial and federal governments to get back into, into building non-market, whether it's subsidized public or co-op housing, to inject additional supply and do so in a way that we can ensure those are units that exist over the long term and maybe then actually put in accessibility, for example, into the design requirements. Um, curious, any reflections from either of you on uh, the importance you see around um, getting back to building non-market housing and what role you see that as playing? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. Um, I'd be curious about Lula's response too, especially um, maybe from, from House of Friendship's perspective. Um, but yes, I'm figuring some stuff out about this right now because I'm very excited about some of the stuff that non nonprofit builders are doing. Um, and, and I really think there's something there that we need to support. But I also remember hearing, um, I think it was Elizabeth Clark was speaking to this at Regional Council, um, where in Waterloo, um, they have a new development going in. They've got a partnership now um, with 
with a developer and I think there's going to be like at least 50 um, affordable units as part of a larger 110 um, unit build or something to that effect. Um, and Elizabeth Clark, who is also a regional counselor, but also um, connected with the YW said that, um, you know, some counselors expressed disappointment that it was not a nonprofit um, builder who, who came in with the successful request for proposal. And she spoke to um, the size of it was probably not very scalable for a number of the nonprofits because they tend to be um, building, like you said, um, Menno Homes has, I think, 48 um, homes uh, being built out on Bridgeport um, and Indwell, um, similar situation. They're not huge numbers. So I'm curious what needs to be put in place to see um, those organizations able to scale up what they can offer um, because I do think they're doing what they're doing well and many of them um, offer those supportive um, services as well. The government, I think, yeah, I think it just needs to um, step up and provide more social community housing um, as well and especially as Lula mentioned um, with the supports needed to help people transition. I know um, Indwell and I think some other providers um, are very cognizant of the fact that, and I think this was mentioned earlier, um, that there's this need um, for people, when people enter um, the affordable housing system at some point, they may have certain needs. As time goes on, those needs may um, adjust and, and we don't necessarily um, do that well to provide the uh, spectrum of, of needs to help people move along. Um, you're either in or you're out kind of thing, um, even though there's gradients of what people need. Um, I'm not sure I fully answered the, the question, but I definitely think there's a place for, for government to, um, commitment to social housing. So I'll just add briefly to that. I don't have a whole lot to say um, on this specifically. So thanks, Melissa, for, for your response. I will just add just to echo um, what Melissa just mentioned, just in terms of the backing that's needed and the support that's needed when the not-for-profit sector is taking on these initiatives. And so I think that's important. Those relationships need to be fostered and um, and the support needs to be there when when not-for-profit organizations are taking on that that builder role in, in, in developing um, new housing. So. So as a closing question, uh, and then we'll just give it one last round if there's things we haven't, we haven't asked about that either of you would like to share, would, would certainly welcome that. We've been speaking a lot about uh, folks that might be unsheltered or um, experiencing homelessness. Um, curious your reflections when it comes to folks who are looking at different uh, elements of the housing continuum. Um, in the post I mentioned, you know, we're seeing a lot of cranes building, I think it's 14 cranes right now, downtown Kitchener. Uh, those are building what developers are incentivized to build, which right now is high-end one-bedroom condos. Uh, when we've got a lot of growing fa uh, families, for example, in our community, um, and I've heard this referred to as kind of the missing middle, as these folks are feeling pushed out in various bidding wars uh, that are taking place uh, in our community, and you know the long-term implications that that might have. And so I'm wondering if so we can speak to, yes, there are the you know, 344 or so folks who are experiencing homelessness. There's the 8,000 people or so that are on the affordable housing wait list. And there's also the number of folks in our community who are, are feeling pushed out as a result of um, some of the pressures at, at this later part of the continuum. Either of you want to share any of your reflections um, on potential solutions here? Um, you know, again, in the post real estate, the blind bidding process being one example, but anything else either of you want to add or comment there? 
Yeah, I can just add quickly, Melissa, um, if that's okay. Um, I think for me, we're in a really unique place right now where we see issues across the continuum. It's not one area that's really suffering and being impacted. So when I think about those in emergency shelter, and then I think about families that you mentioned in your blog that are unable to purchase um, homes and young families that are being pushed out of buildings but can't afford um, single or semi-detached homes. And so I think right now, um, everyone across the board, and I'm saying all levels of government, private sector, not-for-profit sector, have a unique opportunity to really address it um, full circle. So not just fixing one area and then seeing a trickle effect that's going to later impact other areas. So I think if we're going to really do something in response to the number of people in emergency shelter and bringing them into social housing, supportive housing, transitional housing, whatever that looks like, we're really thinking about the effects um, as we move along the continuum. And so just to wrap that thought up, it's really just, we need to look at it full picture. Um, how is this solution going to impact other areas and other individuals that are going to be impacted as well? So yeah, I think we have the knowledge, we have the research, it's right in front of us. So what's figuring out best practice in terms of um, supporting everyone in our community from all income levels? Yeah, and just to add to that, I think I would say, um, I mentioned that idea of push and pull um, with the whole housing um, crisis and, and some of the current concerns around that. So the one thing I think of is, you know, sometimes conversations are brought to council or whatever, where a developer is is saying, I can, I can provide this number of units at 20% um, less, so like at 80% of market rate, um, or I can provide fewer at 60% of market rate. Um, and so now we're having to decide, do we want more units, um, but help people that are better off, or do we want fewer units um, that are going to help people in, in a deeper um, housing need? And it feels like really horrible decisions, like who, nobody wants to make those decisions. So um, I do think a lot of this comes down to um, getting the funding behind it. I, I think people know it's an issue. Like Lula said, there are ideas out there. There We, we know what needs to be done. Um, a lot of it for me comes down to, to funding that. I would also just quickly say that, um, you know, I know everybody hates developers. Nobody likes to like developers um, because you know they're all greedy or whatever the case may be, um, and that they only build. Like I think you phrased it well, Mike. Like what they're incentivized to build. One of the issues is we know that a lot of those one-bedroom units are are getting purchased by um, investors, at least a, a percentage of them, who then turn around and and uh, offer them as rentals. I would say part of that is because we are not making it easy for people to build rentals. Um, and so it's it's more profitable profitable to do it this way. It makes more sense. And all of these investors are providing a need in the market that offers rental housing um, because we're maybe not doing it the way that we could be doing it. And lastly, I would just say, I think there's this culture around home ownership as being the goal that we all need to achieve. Um, I think we need to change that. Um, I feel like it's sort of a North American thing uh, more than what we see in other countries. I don't think there's a lot of value saying that home ownership needs to be where what everybody needs to achieve, that there are lots of great reasons why people might rent and, and we need to stop um, equating home ownership with uh, making it. We want to pro provide those options for people who, who might need them or, or choose them, but also not in the process, not um, 
make it seem like renting is not a, a valuable choice too. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Melissa. Such an important point in the stigma that uh, surrounds. Um, yes, so thank you. That's so well said. Um, I'm going to turn to you both for some closing reflections. Before I do that, just wanted to offer, if folks want to hear more from Melissa on this, uh, Melissa, you took time to contribute a guest blog post a few weeks ago. I don't think I've mentioned it yet. And so we'll put a link to that in the comments. Um, um, Melissa pr provided more of her thoughts around the right balance and diversity and some of the, some of the, the tensions that we've spoken about here um, in more depth. And so feel free to check out uh, that guest post. I'm seeing a question in the comments also around defining what is affordability. And so thanks to Save Our Hood for answering the question. That 30% is the generally accepted definition. I think where it gets interesting is 30% of whose income. Um, and so in the post, you'll find a link to uh, ACORN, uh, uh, an anti-poverty group based out of Toronto, that's encouraging for that to be looking at 30% of minimum wage. Uh, and that being the the definition of affordability. And I think if you did that math in our community, that would be around $700 a month, for example, or so. Um, so it's a really important point when we talk about affordability. Well, what does affordability even really mean? What do we, what's that definition? So thanks for bringing that up. I know that there's a few more questions in the comments. I think we're going to need to, to wrap this up just for timing. And so I'll turn it back to Lula and Melissa. Uh, for any reflections you feel like it hasn't come out yet that you were hoping to have a chance to share or any kind of closing thoughts to each of each of you. Did you want to go first, Melissa? <laughs> sure, I can do that. Um, I feel like I touched on some of the key points I wanted to. I feel, as I keep saying, it's such a big issue. I'm always talking about housing stuff. If you're on Twitter, you can follow me at M2Bowman, and I'm happy to engage in conversations about that. And also, um, you can all find us at wrmb.com if you want to learn more about um, what our organization is trying to do around uh, some of these conversations. Great. Um, I just want to say thank you, Mike, for having us here today. Um, great platform and a really good opportunity to have these conversations that, you know, we see in the media, they're coming up, we're seeing articles quite regularly around what's happening in our community. So it's great to have this opportunity to really talk through some of the things that are happening. So. I just want to say thank you, and um, I think I touched a lot, a lot on the points that I wanted to to really bring forward today. So, well, and thanks to both of you. To me, this is why I'm so excited about these kinds of conversations: is to get a chance to chat with those that are in the thick of it, on the front lines, uh, the work of organizations like House of Friendship um, and like Water Region Yes in 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 my backyard and a better tent city, um, and so many others that we've been speaking about uh, over the course of this conversation. Um, we're lucky to have folks like yourselves in our community that are putting so much of your selves into solving such a complex uh, and, and so important. This is going to define our community over the coming years, the extent to which we step up and address the housing crises we're facing. Um, and while I believe we deeply need more leadership at all levels of government, we also need uh, folks in our community who, um, are, are showing this kind of leadership. And I think we have that in spades. Uh, many of those folks are in the chat with us, including Jeff. And so Jeff, thanks again for you for joining us. Um, sorry for those technical issues. We might try to do something as a follow-up afterwards. Um, and Melissa and Alula, thanks to both of you for making time for this conversation, for the work you and your organizations uh, are doing every day and, and the folks that you're connected with in, in, in difficult work. This is not easy stuff. 
And, and so, yeah, thanks to both of you. Thanks to Jeff. Thanks to those that joined us tonight and the questions that were shared. Uh, for any that didn't get shared, feel free to be in touch. We'd be glad to follow up the conversation. And so thank you all again for joining us. And uh, we'll be in touch about the next one over the coming weeks. Thanks.